uh, we are in the final um, uh, chapter and section of James. I shed a tear this week. I actually was like, man, this has been such a fruitful book. And just so you know, the, the emails, the meetings, the counseling that, that, have, that have been brought forth because of God opening up this book to us has been staggering. Uh, and that he is healing people. He's drawing men and women back to himself uh, through them confessing sin and seeing that he's gracious, that he has an invitation into greater joy and fullness of life uh, in his commands. And so that has been wonderful to see, wonderful to enjoy, enjoy together. Um, and I want to say again, if you're new, we're, just, we're glad you're here. We're, we're glad that you get to witness the gathered people of God sit under the teaching of God's word. Um, I want to just give a, a quick update before we dive into James chapter 5, uh, where we'll land the plane. Um, just to give you an update on Pastor Wilson, we, uh, one of the missionaries, church planners we support in Haiti, we, we finished wiring him the $36,000 for his truck, uh, and he's picking it up the beginning of April, uh, so in a week or two. So it's a nice Easter present for him, right? Uh, so you can give thanks to God for that. Uh, thankful that God is generous through you, and uh, we're just thrilled to continue to be generous as a church, but he just sends his thanks as well, and, uh, and asks just for your prayers as well as they gather for uh, Easter next week, and, and continue uh, working uh, the harvest that is plentiful. Um, and uh, also just wanted you to know, as we end, James, some of you guys are always wondering, man, what, what book are we doing next? I get emails all the time. Uh, some of you guys just want to cheat, I guess, or, or uh, figure things out, or get your book. But what we're looking at is we're going to finish James today. We're going to do uh, Easter Sunday baptism, then we're going to hit Habakkuk. We love to do Old Testament, New Testament. Good. Two people are thrilled. How many of you guys didn't even know that was in the Bible? All of you. Okay, good. Uh, Haba, 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 okay, it's Habakkuk or Habakkuk, however you want to say it. Uh, but Minor Prophet and uh, just a fascinating book. And here's why it's good. It's good because um, he answers so many of the questions we wonder in regards to evil and God's sovereignty and where is God when he seems silent. Um, I think it's going to be a super practical walk for us for a number of weeks. And we're going to end that uh, at the beginning of summer. And then summer we're going to look at different psalms and look at um, how God speaks to joy and anxiety and depression and oppression and all of those wonderful things. And then I already have the whole rest of the year figured out, but I'm not going to tell you yet, okay? So uh, you guys don't, don't cheat. But that's going to be good, so pray, pray for that. Um, uh, we're in James. James, uh, just as we, as we finish this book, if you're new visiting, catch you up to speed. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus had other siblings that were not miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit through a virgin birth like Jesus. But uh, James was one of them. And uh, James was someone who thought his uh, brother Jesus was crazy as he claimed to be God and went on in ministry and mission in his life. And then ultimately, when Jesus dies for sin, rises, and, and uh, kind of comes out of the grave. He meets with James. You see that in the scriptures. James is one of the people that he, that he comes to as a witness, and James is transformed by that. Now, I would argue that any one of us, if we had a sibling who was claiming to be God, uh, we might not agree with that or see that, and if he rose himself back from the dead, you might agree with that, okay? That's what, that's what happens to James. So he's lit on fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gives his life as one of the earliest Christian martyrs. He's a pillar of the faith. Paul calls him in Galatians 2. He now goes and wrings out his life for the mission and ministry of his brother Jesus and the message that he gave that God, in fact, does redeem and reconcile sinners back to a holy, righteous God through the ransoming work of his son alone. And so now he's been doing that, showing that. And here's uh, what he's also been showing us. He's been uh, writing to these early Jewish Christians that are suffering and scattered. So this whole book has really pretty much been tethered to trials, tethered to suffering. And, and within all that, what he's been showing is uh, the Christian Christian life is not the easiest life, but it's the best life. Uh, we've been seeing that life with Jesus is not necessarily uh, roses and butterflies, but it is by far the fullest life, the most enduring life, the most satisfying life tied to him, the one who made all things. And so we don't just take what he's made and abuse those things and worship those things. We worship the one who made all those things, and we've found that there's greater life and fullness of joy when we do that rightly, the ways he's designed us to live. And so um, he's writing that. He's also writing because um, he's terrified there are so many people in the church that claim to be Christians that are not Christians. Um, and I don't know how many of you are aware of that, but just because you gather here doesn't make you a Christian. So he's been laying before us hard realities to say, hey, I don't want you just to believe in Jesus. I want you to experience Jesus. I don't want you just to have faith, but be stunned by the creator of faith. Man, that's what I, I want for you. I want transformation to happen. I want the gospel to take root so it actually bears itself in your life. Um, and here he's going to end as a good pastor, and he's ending this letter reminding us finally and fully the necessity of communion with God. Uh, he's reminding us that, that ultimately all this, you've got to be tied to him. It's not about just external duties or things that you do outwardly. And he shows that even though we've failed, Jesus is still our Savior and the Holy Spirit is our activator. So let's look at verse 13 as James lands the plane. He says, is any anyone among you suffering? 
let him pray. Is any one of you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any one among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Understand, this entire end to this chapter is why it's good reading through and teaching through books of the Bible. It's still tethered to suffering. It's still tied to patient endurance. It's still tied to trials, right? He's circling. He's coming full circle from chapter 1. Hey, um, when you're going through trials, God is at work. He has not left you. Ask him for wisdom. He gives without reproach. God is at work. It's never punitive. It's formative. So he continues this thought here, and he's basically the thrust is, hey, you need to be going to God for all things. Like God is the the activator of all this. He's the one you need to be tied to and with. You're seeing imagery from James 2 where this living faith and dead faith, look, um, um, a Christian is not somebody who just shows up to church. A, A Christian is someone who actually has communion with the living God. Right, someone actually talks to God. So he goes, hey, um, if you're suffering, um, talk to the one who's in charge of that. If you're cheerful, hey, you should give him thanks. Let that roll back up to God. Hey, if you're sick, man, have the elders and others get around you and pray and talk to the one who can actually do something about it. Like, like this is the idea here is that, man, we go to him for everything. He's not like a segmented part of our life. Man, God, Christ, I mean, you even see in Colossians, right, our life is hidden with him. It's not compartmentalized. It's not, well, I've got my marriage and then my life with Jesus. It's, no, it's Christ is all in my marriage. And how does that flesh out and uh, manifest itself? And so here he's showing this amazing, amazing reality and reminder that, remember, God's the one who we need. He's the one who sustains us. He's the one who's at work. He's the one who we call to and go to as a, as a people of faith. Now, we don't go to ourselves or our own ingenuity or our own ideas. We don't go to culture. We don't go to broadcast. We go to Jesus and his word and what God has said. Um, that's what he's laying before us. And, and he's showing us that you'll go through good days and dark days, but consistency that's necessary is you being tied to him. Um, that's what matters here. Um, and like any good pastor, he cares about how the people are doing and how they're doing is getting them to God. So he first says, hey, any of you suffering? Any of you suffering? And, and I, I literally asked that. Are you suffering? This morning, James is asking his people that he pastored in Jerusalem that, the scattered church, are you suffering? He says, "Um, a lot of good ideas of things to do, um, but James says, pray. Um, When we're suffering, right, we tend to blame God, run from God, belittle God, ignore God. James says, I've got a good idea. Pray to God. Talk to God. Go to your Father of lights. He gives good gifts to his children. James is telling us in trials, we pray to God, ask him for help, ask him to strengthen us. He's reminding us of James chapter 1. Man, ask for wisdom from him as to how to see your suffering. Remind him that he's strengthening you, that he's forming you, that he's growing you, that he's using it, that none of it is mindless or um, random, that it's all for God's gracious purpose in our lives. Um, I would just argue we're going to be looking at Psalms this summer. They're a great place to go. Uh, One of the highest categories in the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. And you can just look at the Psalms and pray through those Psalms. Um, their journal entries, their, their, their writings, their thoughts. Their, and you just see humanity in the Psalms. So much identifying with just David and others who write these Psalms and seeing that we have a green light to go to God. Because um, often we don't know what to do with suffering, if we're honest, right? We, as a nation, we don't have a clue what to do with suffering. Medicate ourselves, ignore suffering, suppress suffering, walk away from suffering, hide ourselves from suffering. Um, but here we're saying that we want to lean into the Father God. Um, and I want to say, if, if you're suffering and you're praying, listen, it's okay to ask God to take away your suffering. That, that's, a, that's a godly prayer because Jesus prayed it. Jesus in the garden is, is overwhelmed with suffering and grief. And he's going, man, God, if there's, if there's any way you can take this suffering, remove this cup, man, please do it. But at the end of the day, it's your will. Right? But, the, but there's no harm in going, man, this is painful, this hurts, hey, God, take it from me. This isn't fun, this, this pains me. Help me remember that you're work, help me remember that you're good, help me remember that, that you're sovereign, you're in control, but man, if, if, it's, if it's good for me, best for me, could you remove this from me? It's okay to pray that. I've, I've heard Christians counsel and say, you can't pray that. Well, give me a verse. I got verses to say, hey, let's talk honestly with God. The Psalms will do that repeatedly. David will cry out and say, have you abandoned me, God? Have you left me? Can you remind me of your character and nature? Can you remind me of how you're at work in this? Those are good, honest prayers to pray when you're suffering to God. Because um, some of us, I think, 
uh, we somehow think that um, God is only sovereign and not good. Uh, so you get all up in your head in your prayers. Well, I don't know. He's totally sovereign. So I don't know. How do I pray? And can you take this from me? And should you? And you just get all up in your head. And, man, it's okay to say, hey, it hurts. Make it stop. I've prayed that. I've asked God to make the pain stop. But if this is best for me, if you want to continue to let this linger and be used for my good, it's ultimately your will and what you want. But I'm, I'm still going to ask that you remove this from me. Paul pleaded that the thorn would be removed. And ultimately, God said, no, it's for your sanctification. It pleases me more to keep it there. It's ultimately up to, up to what he wants anyways, but we can ask these things. And sometimes God's answer is yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's later, but he always answers. He always gives you an answer in your suffering. Some of our seasons are going to be long, some are going to be short, some are going to be until we reach glory. Um, but he always answers and sustains us in that. And I think in praying, it's like we, we often think that we're trying to change God's mind. Um, and listen, I just want to say lovingly, uh, it's really bad theology to think you can change God's mind. Um, and I'm not, I'm not like trying to belittle you or make you feel insecure. I'm just saying, man, yes, God can be persuaded. God hears and answers. But so often it's like, hey, I'm trying to get, move God to a good position in my life so he can then pour out answers in a specific way. And I'm going, no, no, hold on. God's going, I'm great. I'm good where I am. You don't need to move me around. You don't try to shift me around. He's trying to get you in a different position. See, see, often, always, prayer is not to get God to change his mind, but get you to change yours. And get you lined up with him, lined up with his will, lined up with what he's trying to do. That's why, man, the more you read this book, you're aligning yourself with what God is trying to align you into. Not, cool, I can read this, and then kind of put God into my box. And so when we're suffering, we pray that way. We ask God to work that way. We ask God to move that way. Hey, God, move me, change me, alter me. When we're suffering, we ultimately go to God and ask him for these things. And then he says to the person who is cheerful, are you happy? You're just in a good season. I love it. Not everybody's suffering. Not everybody's cheerful. Not everybody's sick. It's different in the church, Right? Not all of us are experiencing the same seasons at the same times. And he says, hey, you're in a good season. Is God just uniquely being kind in a way that you're just cheerful, man? Sing to God. Sing to the one who allowed that. Give praises to God. This, 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 now listen, this, this cheerful and I'm singing isn't just like, I got engaged, yeah. Or, I mean, I got a raise at work, yeah. No, this is like, no, you're giving thanks to him, seeing everything good is from the Father of lights. He gives good, gives good gifts to his children. He gives mercy and grace unashamedly, unbiasedly, unconditionally. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. Didn't work for it. I just can't help but thank God for it that I just start singing and praising his name that he be so kind to me. So are you cheerful, not because of what you've done, because of what God has done? Hey, talk to God. Talk to the same God you talk to when you're suffering. Talk to the same God you would talk to when life is not going well. He's showing us these, this amazing reality here. Um, James is saying that, that we commune with God through singing just as we do through praying. Singing is a form of praying. I mean, prayer is just communication with God. And so um, there's over 400 references to singing in the scriptures. Je Jesus prayed with his disciples in Matthew 26. You have over 50 commands to sing in the scriptures. That's why we like to sing loud. It's like we love to shout and give him praise. I mean, some of us are just crazy. We'll go to false gods in an arena who are playing a guitar and shout our lungs off and then come in before the living God of the universe and there's restraint in you. And I'm going, something's off. That you're just celebrating, thankful, worshiping, and then you come in here and there's re restraint and resistance. And, and he's just saying, man, the, the, the loudest plow place you should give praise is when you sing, when you sing among God's people. And so these, the first and second group here is not mutually exclusive. Some of you in your suffering, singing is going to lead you to rejoicing. Haven't you found that? You, you ever seen just happy people, um, how they hum a lot? I know that might sound odd, but they're just, people who are singing usually aren't super grumpy. Like, you don't know, you don't usually walk up and hear someone doing that if they're having the worst day of their life, right? Unless they're humming Metallica or something like that, right? But you don't, you don't hear that, right? You hear them, you hear them humming, sing these, these melodies. We'll, we'll hear Jackson sometimes. He's laying in bed at night. And he, he's just singing and humming songs he learned in, in Bergen Kids and songs he's heard here. It's just so beautiful that it's natural that when he's having a, a good pre-sleep, He's, they're rare, but when he's having a good one, he just starts singing and humming. And so he's showing us here that, man, you should just, a natural response when you're cheerful should be to sing to God, not sing to you, not sing about how great you are, but sing praises to him. 
He's revealing that there's something about singing that strengthens you in your dark nights. It's tied to trials. Now, now I just want to commend you. We did a Rhythms of Worship series. We talked about why we sing. I'd commend that sermon because we talked explicitly why we do it, what it does. I mean, there, there's, we're actually, when you're singing among the people of God, you're actually ministering to one another. I, I shared in that sermon how there are times where I'll just, I'll pull back and just look around because it ministers to me so much just to see other brothers and sisters singing and how they sing and how they worship. I remember last week, right, we were singing, um, Oh, Praise the Name, and David backed off the mic. And I'm telling you, just to hear your voices was soul-stirring for me. To hear a church sing and love to open their mouths. I mean, that's why I love that the Bible says, make a joyful noise, not a good noise. So we all got a green light, right? Doesn't matter if it's good or not. Just a joyful noise. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Okay, that means you don't have to turn to your neighbor and be like, man, your voice is terrible. I mean, that's why we got the other people up front. We're together so we get muffled out so we can sing as loud as we want and know it is a joyful noise. Do you love him? Sing. Sing. And I love that our church loves to sing. I pray it's louder. People, CrossFit can hear us through the walls singing to Jesus. All this quiet, little reserve. Man, the king of kings. When he returns, you think you're going to be like, oh, cool. No, you're going to be shouting and screaming. Making loud praises, the Psalms say. We should be the most excited people on the planet for what God has done in our lives. And, and singing is a response to that. Then he says, are you sick? Are you sick? Some of you might be sick, spiritually and physically. He says, call on the elders to come and pray for you. Um, and see, when it, when it says, if you're sick, invite the elders, we need to be careful. Um, because last week we saw James was showing, hey, when you're suffering, you become selfish. So people aren't doing anything. No one's paying attention to me. He says, it's on you. It's your initiative. Let us know. Go to the elders. Let them know how you can pray for them, how they can pray for you. Don't assume they know. Don't assume they have every idea in the book. I mean, go to them. We, we invite people into our lives to pray for us. It's a humbling thing. I find the, the more prideful we get, the less we ask people to pray for us. Because we don't think we need that. Our life is good. I want to tell you something you can pray for in me that shows weakness. No, that's just pride. Humility says, here's how you can pray for me. Here's how you can labor and love for me. Right? That's how the, the Bible in, encourages us and instructs us. And so, so the elders, apparently, according to James, aren't supposed to be wandering around looking for sick people. Uh, they're supposed to be asked when people are sick. They're, they're supposed to, and I love it. You guys do that graciously. I mean, I've been in so many hospitals. You've called me and said, hey, so-and-so's sick. We've sent elders to houses, elders to hospitals. Hey, we, we need to pray. We need to lay hands. We need to ask God to move, ask God to work. And he says, anoint them with oil. Now, um, listen, there are, there are so many interpretations of what oil is, uh, especially in this text. Um, some think it's medicinal, right? It's for medical purposes. Uh, I think it's maybe even symbolic in that way of healing, um, and so we should be taking medicine as long as prayer, as well as prayer. Some people think it's sacramental. It's a sacrament, right? It somehow dispenses healing on the person as you put oil, um, as you uh, pray over them. Um, but the thrust of this passage is not on the oil. The thrust on this passage is on the power of God and the prayer to God. Because ultimately it says the oil doesn't raise them up, God raises them up. So you've got to be really, really careful here. I mean, the thrust of this is you go to God. God is powerful. God is at work. God is the one who is healing this person. The Bible's not against medicine. I mean, Luke and Acts written by Luke, who was a doctor, right? So the Bible will never get in here and say, hey, it's medicine versus prayer, or it's prayer versus medicine. It's prayer and medicine. Yeah, you should call your physician. You should also make sure you call your great physician. Make sure you talk to both. Make sure you do what you need. But ultimately, hey, it's the person coming before that sick person saying, God, would you, the one who raises us all up finally and fully on the last day, would you raise this brother or sister up presently in this day? Because ultimately, everyone is healed if they're in Christ. The question is really not, am I going to be healed, but when? Because the gospel not only saves our soul from salvation, but it redoes and saves our literal body that God gave us. Um, I wonder, uh, for some of you in your theology, um, is that a helpful question for you? Not, will God heal me, but, but when? Will it be in this present life or will it be in eternity? Because every believer in Christ is fully and finally healed. And some he absolutely will heal this side of heaven. Fully, miraculously. We believe Jesus still heals. We believe Jesus still raises up. We believe Jesus still mends bodies back together. Because um, there's two errors in, in, in our thinking, right? Either he heals everybody or he can heal nobody. 
No, he heals who he wants to heal. Right? So we just, our, it's not the faith that heals. It's our God that heals and our faith is in God's healing power. Right? And so that, that, that's how we see this, man. I mean, this is, this is God saying, hey, yeah, you petition me, you ask me, you plead with me, and I'm going to heal who I want to heal. And for some of us, it might be eternally, uh, which is all of us, and some it might be here in the interim on this present day. But all in Christ receive eternal healing. Um, and that's why, man, the gospel is not just the salvation of the soul, but healing of the body that God gave us. There's not going to be any, any ambulances in heaven. There's not going to be any hospitals. There's not going to be any chemo treatments. Not going to be any pills to take. My, my dad just came out of a gruesome surgery, pain medications, just even thinking about that. He's not going to have to take anything. Um, why? Because this side of heaven, um, it's all not because those are bad things, but they're uh, a response to death, death from sin. But Jesus finally and fully conquered Satan's sin and death and will fully do away with it and banish it and make a new Jerusalem that we will all reign and rule with him if we are in him and if we have trusted in him as Savior, King, Lord, Messiah. And so that's a, that's a great thing that we await to. And so we say, God, could you, could you bring a piece of that now? And could you give us just a glimpse of that right now through praying and asking for healing? Would you heal some now? Um, but it's important here to see that the word for sick is not just physical. It's actually the word for mental and spiritual. Because what James has been talking about here in James chapter 5 is he's talking about the, the spiritually burdened person. Trials, suffering. And so here he's saying, it's presumed that since James is discussing spiritual suffering, that he's talking about the spiritually weak person. The spiritually sick person. He's saying you need to remember Jesus and be strengthened by Jesus through prayer. You need to remember that this trial is not punitive. You need to remember, remember that, that God is creating depth in you, that God is forming you. He wants you to be complete, lacking in nothing. That's what prayer does. It realizes who, who God is and his character and nature and who you are as his son and daughter. He's saying they need to be healed in that way. Will you pray for healing for the spiritually sick person? We need to be strengthened by Jesus through prayer. You know, when Jesus was on earth, people would take sick people to Jesus, carry people to Jesus. Sick people would throw themselves at Jesus. Jesus has ascended. Now he gives us his Holy Spirit and he gives us his people. So Jesus still desires to heal and we're the ones who are his advocates in the sense that we pray for others with the Holy Spirit's authority and power to move and work. And Christ is our mediator, so Christ hears that. Jesus hears that and gives that to the Father. But we believe that he still desires to work and move in that way. And this is why I think it's more likely than medical or sacramental. And listen, you guys can disagree with me. It's great. We can debate that, discuss that. But, but I see this more of because of the line of the text, where it is, clearly with suffering and trials, I see it. The better explanation given in the Old Testament. Because really, um, the disciples are sent out maybe once to anoint with oil. Uh, and Jesus is never mentioned ever doing it. Doesn't mean he didn't, but just no record of it. Um, but what you have here is th this oil aspect is every time in the Old Testament a king or a priest or someone was consecrated for a future purpose, they'd be anointed with oil, specific future usefulness. Um, so I don't see it as medicinal or magical. I see it as missional. Um, that, that God is saying through these prayers, he's helping us remember our calling. Remember what God is doing, James chapter 1. Remember that there is a purpose behind these trials, and he is creating in you and growing you and strengthening you through prayer that God is at work and he's using you for his kingdom and for his purposes, that he hasn't left you, hasn't abandoned you. That, that, that prayers fundamentally strengthen your ministry and mission that God has called to all of his saints. And when we see a weak sister or brother wavering in that, struggling in that, we come alongside and ask God to spiritually heal them and remind them of what's true and encourage them in their mission and ministry, encourage them in the gospel, encourage them that God is for them and has not left them. God is at work. God is using us. And then we see in verse 15b, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James also shows that sometimes, sometimes, people are sick because of sin. Sometimes. Unrepentant sin. Rebellion against God. Sometimes spiritual sin leads to physical illness. Um, this is because one, one reason is just naturally. We're mind, body, and soul as a person. So, so ultimately what you think affects your body. 
If you're extremely anxious, if you're overwhelmed, it's going to affect your body and how you live and how you operate. Anxiety. And also open rebellion to sin. Just giving yourself to sinful decisions and choices could absolutely cause you physical harm and suffering that you bring upon yourself through the acts of sin. Um, What we think in our mind affects our body. Corinthians, Paul will say that you're in sin and that's why some of you are sick and dying. So I always ask something first before I move on and give some other clarifications. I'm, I'm always asking, if I'm going through a season of just oppressiveness, depressiveness, anxiousness, man, I'm always asking God, is, is there something I'm doing where I'm opening up opportunity for this? Is, is there something I don't see? Are there blind spots? Is there something I'm not repented of, repenting of? Is there somewhere where I'm not walking more fully in line with your good design and purpose for me? Is, is there a way where I'm not living above? Rep- I'm just asking those questions because I want to make sure first that it's not me with some secret sin. And I want to make sure that there's confession to God and confession to the elders and confession to others that that any ways where I'm even tempted, hey, I think it's so great not just to confess your sins to one another, but to confess your temptations. Confess where you're tempted. Confess where you know you're you're prone to wander. Man, because that accountability is beautiful. If you know your weak spots and your Achilles heel, then confess even those to others so they might pray for you. But here's what I want to say in this. Even though absolutely it's, it's some of the time, I want to say something so important here. It's definitely not all of the time. Every time you're suffering, every time you're going through difficulty, every time you're sick is not always directly tied to sin that you're not repenting of, that you have not confessed I mean, there's a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's just the fallen world we live in. Sometimes it's Satan oppressing or opposing us. Uh, Sometimes it's a mystery. We need to be very, very careful not to always assume it's sin. And here's why. Um, There is a very, very popular doctrine in the world. Very popular. And Jesus went after it in the Gospels. Where sin and sickness are just inextricably connected. So they'll come along and say, oh, you're sick? Man, you must not be repentant of sin. Oh, oh, you you must not have enough faith because you'd be healed by now. All Christians must be healed. All Christians must be free from sickness. That just says you're a bad Christian or you're just a bad follower of Jesus. Um, I I don't believe that. I don't believe that because of the Bible. I don't believe that because it's just my preference. I believe it because you see that Jesus heals always who he wants to heal. And there are times where God is glorified in sustaining the suffering of a saint. God is equally glorified in totally healing and delivering you instantaneously and he's fully glorified just as much as he is your rock and your refuge and your fortress in times of darkness where he sustains you through every bit of your dark night you tell me that's less miraculous that's less righteous we see that consistently that God is glorifying that. You see, you see in the book of Job, talked about it last week. I mean, Job suffered, and then he's got his, right, seminary friends with no ministry experience coming along going, oh, you must be sinful, Job. You must be. That's why this is happening. That terrible theology, according to the Bible. He was righteous, loved God, served God, praised God, and they gave him bad instruction. So we need to be very, very careful. The Bible does not let us have and a green light always to say to someone, oh, it must be your sin. We always say, God, would you sustain, would you reveal whatever you need to in this? Would you help this brother or sister see what needs to be done, how healing needs to happen? Would we help that we just confess everything we know, man, just confess, confess. Then they leave it in the Lord's lap here. In John 9, you've got Jesus, right? Man born blind. What do the religious say right away? Oh, okay, who sinned, his mom or dad? And Jesus is something at that time in the, in the ancient Near East that was staggering because they saw sin and sickness inextricably tied. We don't want to get those sinners around us. It'll like jump on us like an illness. They thought that's how it was caught, like sin and sickness. And, and Jesus just looks at him and says, uh, neither did. It was so that God would be glorified. So the works of God would be glorified in this blind man. See, see, sometimes God wants to glorify his name and his renown through sustaining you in your suffering and not alleviating it fully. The reason I say this is the New Testament's littered with this testimony. Let me just read a couple of verses. 2 Timothy 4.20. Erastus, Paul's telling Timothy, Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus who was sick in my lettuce. Paul left, says he left a saint who was sick. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just pray for his healing? 
If, he was, if all Christians were supposed to be healed, why didn't he say, hey, we've got to stay here and pray that he's healed before I leave? 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul tells Timothy, drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach and all of your frequent ailments. Timothy, faithful pastor, loved the Lord, guarded sound doctrine. He had frequent ailments. So take some medicine there. Have some wine that will help ease that. Why didn't he say, you lack faith, Timothy? Why aren't you healed from your ailments? Keep praying. We have to be careful. God is glorified in sustaining our weakness. Philippians 2.25, Paul says to the Philippian church, I think it necessary to send back Epaphroditus to you, who is your messenger, because he longs for you all and is distressed because you heard he is ill. Indeed, he was near to death, but God had mercy on him. He goes, here's Epaphroditus. He almost died, but God had mercy on him. Um, I love that. God knew I couldn't handle that. And he said, yeah, God healed him, but it was just his mercy. He decided to. So we pray and ask and plead, but it's ultimately up to him. Paul in Galatians 4.13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment I first preached the gospel to you. Even though it was a trial to you, you did not despise me, but welcomed me as an angel of God or as Jesus Christ himself. Paul goes, you remember the first time I came to you? I was so sick when I first came to preach the gospel. You, you didn't judge me. You didn't say it was unrepentant sin. Man, you welcomed me as you'd welcome an angel. You welcomed me as Jesus Christ himself and trusted that God would sustain me, that God would use me. So we understand people aren't always healed. Listen, we are going to aggressively plead for that and pray for that and ask God for that, and he does it, and he can do that, but we also need to equally understand that faithful men and women are not healed, this side of glory. And to presume that it's something intrinsically in them is bad theology. And so we're seeing here, This is why that doctrine can be dangerous. There are people who love the Lord and are sick. There are people I've prayed for still for years that God would heal them and raise them up in this day presently, and he has not. There are people I I prayed for him not to take from this life, and he has. There are people I prayed not to take from this life, and he sustained them and kept them. But it's not Jesus heals everybody or he heals nobody. It's Jesus heals who he wants to heal. He'll be glorified in him sustaining people through sickness and suffering. And he's glorified in totally healing them on the spot. That's, that's what we love to see. But here is the thrust that we need to heed. Don't live a duplicitous life. James has been consistently laying before us the reality of, man, I'm, I'm fearful that there are some of you that think you're Christians that are not. So this is how he's tying this together. He's going, man, please confess your sins if it's there. Like, we don't just confess vertically to God. We confess horizontally to others. That's where part of this healing comes from. Right? Not just in our private time going, well, God, you know about this. So I'm going to confess it to you, but I'm not going to confess it to a brother or sister. He says there's great healing in that. Don't hold on to secrets. Man, I say this all the time. And come into the light. Man, confession brings healing. Listen, if, 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 if right now there is a sin that God is bringing to light that is just continually pestering you, the only way you're going to be free from its shackles is by confessing that to somebody and letting them pray for you that you be healed, that you receive spiritual healing. And listen, man, listen, God loves you enough that he'll eventually expose you. If he loves you, he'll expose you. Like you can only go so long. I mean, some of us, I've met with some of us, this is super weighty, super serious. I mean, we go, no, no, I'll eventually have control of it, I'll eventually get out of it. I mean, this flirtation, this, this addiction, this, man, I'll eventually get control of it. Man, I don't have to tell my wife right now, or my kids right now, or my family right now, damn it, I'll tell my elders right now. Like, we just, we don't have to tell anybody, because I'll eventually do it. And I'm going, bro, um, how long has that been going on? Well, I don't know, since I was like 18. You're 37. Well, what kind of blindness are you walking in? You think you're going to magically wake up when you were 18 to 37? The track record says you need to obey God in this. The track record says you want freedom, you want fullness of life, you want to enter into joy, you want to enter into God's invitation to restore and redeem you. How about you get this out in the open? Darkness cannot kill darkness, only light can do that. So the Bible says bring it into the light, man. Get it exposed. Let light heal it. Let light unconceal it. 
Man, so you can walk in joy, man. Listen, all of James's invitations are into joy. Confession is invitation into healing, not to shame, not to confusion, not to, not to, not to push you down or, or look at you weird, man. No, it's to welcome you. It's to warm you. It's to woo you. It's to call you back to the saving grace of Jesus in the gospel. And that's, that's why he's laying this before us. Man, we, we have... Recovery group, Thursday nights here, every Thursday night, right in the classroom. Justin and Chris, they're right here. They're two lumberjacks, that's what they, they look like, all right? Plaid, shaved head, okay, beard. You can't miss them. Listen, seriously, um, God is doing amazing work in that ministry. And, and, and maybe that's you. They're, they're going to help guide you, lead you. Listen, addiction's not, man, I'm struggling on heroin, left for dead in the streets, it's addictions to fame, addictions to greed, addictions to sexual sin. It's addictions to fame and prestige. It's addictions to career. It's addictions to, it's all the same root. Um, and God's freeing men in that place. So maybe for some of you, it's going, no, I need to get there. Come talk to him after the service, man. Don't waste time. Let's grow in healing. Let's pray for you. Let's ask God to do work in that. God wants us to confess our sins. Otherwise, he will expose us, and that's always worse. That's always worse. And the enemy's going to try to sow a seed right now in your mind. Right now. Just keep putting it off. I don't have to tell that mentor of mine. I don't have to tell my elders. I don't have to tell my spouse. I don't have to tell. It'll be better if you wait, better if you push it off, better if you just eventually try by your own vigor and might to overcome it. And I'm promise you, you need a resurrected Savior outside of yourself to possibly deliver you and resurrect your dead heart and dead mind from the pangs of sin to give you life and allow you to walk. You need him. And he's saying right now, come to me. And then he says this, and this is so awesome. And James will circle back. But I love this next verse. Verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power and it is, at work, and it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Man, if you're a Jewish Christian at this time, and you're thinking about the Old Testament, man, who is crushing it as a spiritual hero who prayed in faith, and, man, they were an example of all that James has said, you got Elijah. You got Elijah. So James is going, okay, let's take your boy Elijah, right? You remember him, right? He's the one with the prophets of Baal and God. They're calling fire from heaven. Whose God is better? Whose God is greater? And Elijah just mocking them sarcastically goes, hey, man, throw buckets of water on there. Keep piling it up. Keep piling it up, man. Throw more on there. Calls fire from heaven. God sends fire. It consumes the whole altar, dries up every bit of water. The people can't believe it. He's the one who literally God used through his prayers to control the weather forecast. He goes, you guys remember that? When he prayed that it would hold off rain and then it would bring rain? But here's what's amazing in this text. And here's what James is trying to get you to see in this passage. The thrust of this is he was a man just like you and me. That's so crazy. I mean, I mean, Peter says in his letter, he goes, um, we have a faith of equal standing. Come on. Isn't there somebody that's going, well, well Peter? Right? Come on. His, his faith, his relationship is not equal with mine. Elijah, right? Hold on. His resume is a little bigger. I mean, I have not called fire from heaven to destroy an altar and dry up every ounce of water. I have not prayed for the weather to change in the way that he did and seen God act and respond. And, and here James is saying, man, hold on a second. Your theology is so messed up. Elijah was a man just like you and me. He goes, it wasn't about Elijah. It wasn't about how great Elijah was. It was about how awesome and great God is. God's the one who raises up. God is the one who's at work. God is the one who heals. God is the one who is with us in trials. He's going, big deal, man. He was just like you and me. Man, Elijah's got nothing on you. Moses has nothing on you. Paul has nothing on you. He was a man just like you, flesh and blood. See, this book is not about you reading a bunch of men and women who did awesome things for God and holding them up on a pedestal. It's going, man, they were a bunch of average Joes just like you and me who had an awesome God. We can't believe he used them. 
Can't believe how awesome God is. Do you see what he did? Do you see what he brought from heaven? Do you see how he responded to their prayers? I mean, I mean, what is in you when you see people of faith? You look at pastors, you look at, I don't know, people of big movements. Do you think, is your first thought, man, there's something intrinsically in them that's just awesome? Man, there's nothing awesome about me. I mean, just get around me for a day, right? You all know that if you have. Nothing awesome. My wife tells me every night, I know, babe, I can't believe it. Can't believe they come back every Sunday. She tells me every night, right? I, I know there's, there's just nothing. Man, God is at work. God uses fools. God uses donkeys. God uses just those on the fringe as some of his brightest lights. He loves flexing his glory through those who are weak. He loves doing it. So listen, man, if you're in this place, that, that's the message of the gospel. That's what he's reminding us in the lives. You, you think that prayer is all about how good you are and how strong you are? No, it's how awesome God is, man. He'll take anyone and use any prayer of theirs. He's just like you, flesh and blood. I love it. If you look at the text, it's, wow, he's got a nature just like ours, just as sinful, just as fallen, and he's a righteous person. Just like us, saved by God, loved by God through the grace of God and Jesus Christ. That's the equalizer. That's the qualifier. And so as a result, he prayed not according to his greatness, but the greatness of his God. He knew his God was big. And so, man, we know we can make big requests, not because we're amazing, but because God's amazing. And he's powerful, and he desires to heal and restore. And he wants to work. Man, some of us have got to start realizing this. He's not like us. Elijah is like us. God's not like us. Paul is just like us. God's not like us. Moses is just like us. God is not like us. And then he ends with an interesting ending and a sobering one. And it fits. He says this in verse 19. So, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James knows that the natural response in some of us in suffering is to wander. We wander a number of ways. Uh, maybe you wander theological. Um, I don't believe God exists anymore. I don't believe the Bible is inerrant. I don't believe God is good. I don't believe in his character. I don't believe in his nature. I don't believe that God is for me. I don't believe God created the world. I don't believe that God has authority in the world. I don't believe that God sent Jesus. I don't believe that Jesus is saving and good and right. Maybe it's, I don't know, relationally. You just wander from the church. I don't need to be here. I'd rather run, not come to the one place where it's a hospital for sick people. Try to do it on my own. Maybe it's morally, man. You just, you wander. You just are making shipwreck of your life through unrepentant sin and open rebellion one after the next. And James here, as he's ending this way, he's ending this because he knows that a response is not always faith. I trust God. It's flight. I'm running away from God. And he knows that wandering is dangerous, and he wants the wanderer to be brought back. He wants them to know that there's rescuing. Because listen, this has been James' persistent fear throughout the whole book. If you've been here for any number of weeks, you know his persistent fear is there are people that are in the church in these seats right now that think they're Christians who are not Christians. That are wanderers and they don't think they're wanderers. That their hearts are far from God and they don't think their hearts are far from God. That they're in dangerous territory about to get singed and they don't think they're in dangerous territory about to get singed. That's his persistent fear. This is nothing new. This is total James, classic James. And he's showing here that this wandering that he uses, the word he uses is objective evidence that they were never Christians to begin with. This is not accidental. This is, I hear you, James. I hear what you've said in this letter. I hear what God has spoken, and I outright refuse to be obedient. I will not come under his good, gracious design. I will not listen to the things that you've said. That's what he's saying when he says wanderer here. That's the person he's talking about. And James has not let us away from this. If there is no repentance in your life, no turning to Christ, no desire to love and follow him, be careful what path you're on. You might be on the one that's wandering away from him, even though you sit here week after week. The pathway you're on is different. 
Listen, we've, we grew up in a, in a weird Western society where you look like church people, dress like t- church people, talk like church people. That makes you church people. No, no church people, Christians, repent of sin and turn to Jesus. He's their allegiance. He's their Lord. We commune with him. We love him. We desire him. We're not perfect. We're repentant. We're works in progress. We're not perfection yet. But man, there's, there's elements in your life, even if it's just a small percentage, where you're going, I want you, at the end of the day, the sin is nagging at me, I see it's destroying me, I see it doesn't lead to life, so I'm going to choose Jesus. I'm going to submit to him and follow him and ask the, the faith family to come around me. I mean, that, that's the Christian's heart. He atones for my sin, he's my substitute in my place, I achieve no righteousness on my own, right? You get, you get nothing in justification, you get no credit, no boasting, nothing. And then he puts you on the path of sanctification, he's showing you, hey, you growing now in the likeness of Jesus Christ is another way he's calling you into joy through the fellowship of saints, through the work of his spirit through the church, so that you can continue to stay on the narrow path. And James is just ending his letter here, reminding us of this, and he's showing us the reality of sin. When you give yourself over to sin, the sin hardens. And as it hardens over time, you become angry and bitter and aggressive. And it's amazing. He says that ultimately what will happen is if you bring the wanderer back, it will cover a multitude of sins. It's borrowing language from Peter where love covers a multitude of sins. Here's what happens. Love, when the love of Jesus Christ and the profound reality that Jesus took your sin in your place for your sin, gifts you his righteousness, right, appeases wrath that should be rightly poured out over you, he welcomes you, he de-escalates your hardened heart through love that woos you back to life. The love of Jesus Christ calls you back into life. It calls you back into joy. It protects you from your wandering. You see that. You see him hanging. You see him rising. And that is the very thing that calls you out of your drunken stupor in sin. And James is saying, is that you? And that's why James ends this letter not with a benediction, but a call to action. And I'll be honest. This week, I was asking the Lord, how do you want us to end this service? Like, what would please you? What would be right out of all the things we've heard from James say? And I think it's action right now. I think it's we hear the word and we respond right now. I think it's fitting to end the service just like James ends his letter. And it might be a little awkward for some of us. And it might be a little uncomfortable. But listen, man, he says in this text, some of you are wandering and you, you can save your soul from death. And this is real. This is serious. Some of you are suffering, you need to pray. Some of you are cheerful, you need to sing. Some of you are sick, you need to be prayed for by the elders and by others. And some of you are wandering, you need to confess your sin right now to somebody. Right now. Some of you, you're sick spiritually, you've wandered, you've been doubting, blaming, cursing. Some of you need physical healing. So here's what, here's what I want to do, and here's what I believe God wants us to do. Um, the elders are going to come down front. I'll be down front. Peter, who's going to be installed this spring, he'll be down front too. Um, and listen, I, I want you, if, if you need healing physically or you need healing spiritually, um, that you come and, and have us pray for you. Um, if you're wandering, if there's concealed sin, you come and confess it and have us pray for you. That God would hear you. Some of you guys, you, you might become a Christian this morning because you need God to pray for you that he would heal you and save you. The first step is confessing your sin. Uh, and listen, some of you are going to go, oh, that, that's shameful. No, no, that's honorable. It's not shameful to, to come down front. It's not shameful to get prayer. It's actually super honorable. It takes a humility there. Um, others of you, maybe it's just you're suffering. You need to sit and pray. Others of you, it's going to be, man, I'm, I'm cheerful and I just I want to I wanna sing. Um, listen, the supper, the table's still going to be open, but, but here's what I'm going to say about the Lord's Supper. I would never take that away from you. It was a celebratory act in the New Testament church, in the life of church history. It is something that we revel in. But listen, um, knowing the size of our church now, I, for a bulk of us, we shouldn't take the supper today. I don't want anyone drinking judgment on themselves. I want you confessing sin. I want you being brought to the fold of God. I want you finding Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. I want you to be healed I want you to be freed. And some of you just forget the supper. 
Some of you, it's going to nourish you well. I don't know where you all land in a room this size, but I'm, I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to move. I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to work. I'm going to trust him to do what he wants to do. We got no guardrails. We're not trying to orchestrate anything. We're just saying, hey, let God do and move and prompt in the ways that he wants to do that. Um, there are some of you, the enemy's going to say, stay seated. Don't you dare get up. Don't you dare go get prayer. Listen to his voice. Who's speaking to you? Who wants healing for you, God or the devil? Who wants you freed from your sin, God or the devil? Who wants you to experience wholeness of life, God or the devil? So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to work. I'm going to ask God to move. I'm going to ask God to save who he wants to save, to heal who he wants to heal. We're going to pray for you. We're going to sing. And that's what it's going to be. This is going to be a time of man. Some of you are suffering, pray. Some of you are cheerful, sing. Some of you are sick. Come to the elders and ask for prayer. Let's, let's go before the Lord. Father, um, we trust that, that you are good, that you want to move. God, we are fools to think that when we're in the household of faith, that is a time to play games or move ourselves away from the graces that you've extended to us right here. Father, there are some that don't need to call an elder. They need to come to an elder now to pray and ask for some. It's spiritual healing. Some it's they need to confess their sins so that we could pray over them that they might be healed. For some, it's physical healing, something, a type of suffering that, that you want us to pray for, that you might deliver them from that for your glory and namesake. God, for others of us, maybe it's contemplation being led into song. For others, others of us, maybe we're in a, a season of suffering, want to grab a brother or sister and just pray with them. But God, we have the household of faith here, so would you move, would you work with the Holy Spirit, do the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Would you lead the right hearts and lead the right minds? God, we want to be a freed people. God, I pray for those that are in darkness and in secret sin that is enslaving, that that pesters them at night, that keeps them awake. God, help them not to buy the lie that confession would ruin their marriage, but it might save it. That it might ruin their image, no, it might save it. God, there is some on the brink of death that you want to save. And you say it covers a multitude of sins. The love of Christ and the gospel covers past, present, and future sins. So Father, help us to be obedient to you as we need to. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to say, some of you guys, listen, you don't need to get your kids. They're fine, they're safe. If you're in this room, you got kids, you're going, oh, I don't know. No, this is more important. Let's ask God to move, ask God to work, and enjoy what he's doing together.